Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. Hymns are in many ways the oral history of our faith. Sometimes it's the timeless music of our predecessors that's just what our soul needs. In this new series, we'll delve into the history to take some of those classic, overlooked, and left-behind hymns and explore their meaning. So come along and join in as we start this brand new series, How Sweet This Sound. You know, I sent, uh, Justin sent out the, the song list this week to all the, uh, the worship team, and I was like, hey, you guys see a theme in this? <laughs> over and over again. How many times can you sing Amazing Grace in different versions, right? But we, I think we hit it a lot, apparently, yeah. How many of you have ever had one of those bless your heart moments? Anybody had one of those bless your heart moments? Yeah. Now, if, if you are, um, I know I've got some, some people who are not from the South, so let me just be clear about what bless your heart is. When we say bless your heart, it means you're an idiot. That's what that means, right? So that's not, a, that's not a kind reality that we want to offer to you. That's just exactly what it is. It's a negative reality. But we've all had those bless your heart moments. You know, my wife and I were sitting on our front porch during the pandemic, and our neighbor decided that uh, he was like 17 years old. He decided he wanted to learn how to ride a skateboard. And uh, he wanted to show off in front of us as he went down the sidewalk, which is very cracky. Um, and uh, we were like, hey, good going, buddy. And he got just past our house. And as he did, I, he hit one of those cracks and he was like, poof, poof, oh, poof, and just landed flat back in the, in the middle of the road, actually. And we were like, bless your heart. <laughs> bless your heart. You know, I remember I had the same experience with my foster brother. We went on a, uh, a vacation. We went down to Jamaica and and he was so excited to get underneath this uh, waterfall that was flowing. We could all get under it. And, and he didn't quite pause to listen to the instructions that the, the floor right before the waterfall was extremely slick. He just took off in the middle of instructions. And as he did, he slips. And I have never seen someone, I mean, this was the pose, except imagine it this way and about four feet in the air. That's where he was, and he just landed smack on his back, and we all were just like, bless his heart, right? And it could happen at any time. You know, it's always a big fear, particularly for a person like myself in the middle of public speaking or, or some of the most important moments in people's lives to have one of those bless your heart moments, but they happen. Uh, in fact, I was watching some uh, you know, videos the other day online, and I ran across a pastor, how many of you have ever been to a funeral where, where the, they have the dove release at the end? Usually that's not in the hands of the pastor. And after watching this video, I discovered why. I think, Daniel, we got the video. Let's just, let's just run that. And my brothers, I heard David said the other day, Oh, if I had wings like this dove, for then will I fly away and be at rest. Yep. That is exactly why they don't put those birds in my hands. That is terrible. Uh, That's not the only one. I saw another video where the guy decided to release the dove. He didn't toss it, but he didn't watch his back. And the dove flew out, flew back, and an 18-wheeler took it away. It was a tragic reality, but would you just look at somebody right next to you and say, bless his heart. And you can look at somebody else who you've been meaning to say it to and just go, bless your heart. That's, you're an idiot. That's exactly what you're saying in that moment. And you know, here's the thing with today's hymn, the only way that we were able to arrive at the lyrics of this hymn is for the individual who wrote them. 
to have a bless your heart sort of moment. In fact, he had a lot of those sort of moments. And what I'm going to do each week this month is I'm going to pick one hymn that we can focus on. And hymns, you know, they've always sort of held this iconic place in our history as a church. And we've got songs that we sing today and we love, but but the hymns themselves just hold this special place in our heart. And this hymn in particular is one of those hymns that I think people who didn't grow up in church often know the lyrics to. You find it as the backdrop to a lot of different uh, music tracks on, on movies and those types of things. But John Newton is the person who wrote this hymn. And John Newton was born in 1725, and he was what we would describe today as a hot mess. Like, that was him. He was just messed up from head to toe, bless his heart. You know, he did everything he could to mess up his life over and over again. John, he, for a while, he worked on a ship, and as he was working on the ship, he was absolutely hated by everyone who, who worked on that ship with him. True story. He, he was so wild, he was so violent, he was such a raging drunk that his captain and those on the ship nicknamed him the Great Blasphemer. That's who John Newton was. Can you imagine having that sort of name bestowed over you? This is the great blasphemer in our midst. Like, he hated God. He hated everybody. And everybody equally hated him. Bless his heart. He was so bad. The phrase uh, that comes to mind, cuss like a sailor, I, I'm pretty sure that was him. Uh, his, his, his captain actually said this. I've got the quote. He said, not only did he use the worst language I've ever heard, he created new words that exceeded the limits of verbal debauchery. This is John Newton. This is the man who would eventually write that, bless his heart. But he didn't have just a bad mouth. He was also hated. He was so hated that on one occasion, he actually fell overboard into the ocean. And it seems appropriate. What would you throw at a person who throws, who, who falls? Yeah, a raft, you know, life vest, anything that could save their life. Instead, his, his fellow sailors threw harpoons at him as he was floundering around in the middle of the ocean. Like, this is how bad that they despised him. And he, of course, was furious at this, and he would, he would often kind of lash back out. But on this one occasion, he lashed back out. His captain, because he was so violent, his captain stripped him down in front of everybody. I think there were like 350 men at this time. Stripped him down and flogged him eight dozen times in front of everyone, right? And of course, this sent John over the edge. At this point, John was ready to kill anybody in sight, and particularly he was going to kill the captain on the other side of this particular endeavor. But as he started to come up with the plans to to kill his captain, this storm came in his life. Literally a storm came upon him and upon the boat that was in the middle of that. And this man, who had been hated by everyone, who hated everyone, who hated God and everything in his life, he started to fear his own mortality in that place. And uh, the boat is rocked back and forth, and it's tossed side to side. And in the middle of all that, he had one friend who, who had stuck by his side, And this friend got swept overboard and did not survive. And so John is feeling not only the weight of his anger and his frustration and his resentment with life, but now he's facing the grief of his friend being died. And in that moment, as things get worse and worse and worse, he turns his heart back to God and he prays that God would get him out of this. Whatever it took, get him out of this. And in fact, the storm did die down. And John did survive that storm. And on the other side of that storm, he remembered that prayer, bless his heart. He remembered exactly what he had done, the way he had cried out to God, the way he had called for that mercy. And when he survived the storm, it was shortly after this that he had this encounter with God's grace that completely transformed his life. 
transformed it so much that in 1772, when he sat down after experiencing the grace of God in this way, he started to pin the words of this song right here. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The worst of the worst. He could feel the weight of those lyrics, that it was God's grace who stepped in to this wretch. Once I was lost. I was lost in so many different ways. I was lost at sea. I was lost in my mind. I was lost relationally. I was lost in all these ways, but now I'm found, and now I see. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, to fear in the proper race, ways. It was grace my fears were able to be released. How precious did that grace appear the hour that I first believed. This is the story that led us to this point, this song that we sing over and over again. This was the life that was lived behind it, and it was a life in, very, in many, many ways that not a single one of us would want to live. No one would wish to have the life that John Newton had, but it was a life that led him to the point where he could recognize the undeniable grace of God. It was a life full of regrets. It was a life full of pain. It was a life full of confusion. It was a life that was full of relational dysfunction and trauma that just kept perpetuating itself over and over again. And that was the journey that John Newton was on. And it's the journey that ultimately led him to find a grace that is undeniable. And to write down lyrics that some of us, not all of us, but sometimes we sing that song in such a flippant manner because we know it so, so very well. It just sort of spills off of our tongue without really feeling the full weight of what led to the moment where he could present those lyrics. And when I pause for just a moment to think about those lyrics and to think about what they might have meant, and, and even to think about perhaps what scriptures John would have been reading before he wrote those letters, those lyrics down. We don't know what he read. We don't know what he was, you know, what Bible study he was in or what cycle of the church here it was in. We don't know any of those things. But my mind does go back to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the passage that Becky read to us just a little while ago. This passage in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul is getting so wrapped up in his emotions that his, his grammar is actually pretty terrible. Like, this is one of the worst places in all of Paul's writings. Paul's not always great with how he writes, but this is probably some of the worst. It was like he was just so incredibly excited, he just started writing down things, and, and his mind was all over the place, and he was so passionate, he couldn't get, like, a full thought out, bless his little heart. But he was putting his thoughts down as fast as he could on paper. He was doing it as fast as he could. And as we read through verse 1 through 9... There's no doubt that he talks over and over about the grace of God, and that's sort of the central theme that he pulls out. But there are three movements that Paul has in this that I want to highlight for us today. Three things that he really wants to make sure we get. They're, they're not the cleanest written. They're not the, most, you know, they're not the greatest prose that are out there. But there are three themes that he constantly hits on, and he pushes towards us, and there are ways in which we can experience the same transformation that Paul experienced, the same transformation that John Newton experienced, this amazing grace of God that is for us. And as we read through these, these, the, these nine verses, here's the, th the general themes that kind of come. The first movement that we're going to notice, and we notice it very, very early on in verse 1, you were. That's it. Can you say that with me? You were. That's the theme. In verse 1, he says this, you were dead. That's it. You were dead. You were dead at one point in time, now you're not. You were dead because of your trespasses and the sins in which you lived in, but now you're not. If you're a follower of Christ, and this is presumably who Paul is talking to in this place, he says, you're not dead today. You're not what you are. You aren't today what you were yesterday. He says, you were that. You were dead at one point in time. But if you're in Christ now, you aren't what you were back then. 
And it's important to remember that on the other side of any sort of encounter that you and I have with the risen Christ, this is our reality. In Christ, we are something different than what we were. And Paul wants to make sure we remember that. We live into that all the time. We can't forget that as an important piece. And I I spent a lot of time on this a couple weeks ago at Easter, and so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it today. But Paul wants us, right at the beginning, to remember that reality. You are not what you were. You were something, but you're not anymore. And what were you? You were dead. That's what he says. This is what you were. You were dead at one point in time, but not anymore. And of course, as dead people, here he goes on, he tells us exactly what we are. As dead people... We were simply following the course of this world. We were following it just as the normal course would take place, following the rulers of the powers of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who were disobedient. That's what we were doing. This is the normal course of life that we would just pursue this, that life in and of itself inextricably leads us all to death. It happens. It's our reality, and that's where we were as we were following it. But this reality... And it's not just for like one or two of you in the room. It's not just for one or two who were reading this letter earlier on. Paul says, you know this, you experience it. This reality is for all of us. It is our reality. He goes on in verse 3. He says, all of us, all of us. Can you say that with me? All of us were once, once lived among them in the passions of our flesh. That's what we did. We all lived in that way, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were, by nature, children of wrath like everyone else. There was something about the way we lived our life that separated us off from true life. It set us at enmity with the creator of all things seen and unseen. And and why do we need to start here? This is the last thing I'll say about this, and then we'll move to the second. Why, Why should we always, 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 always start in this space right here? And Paul would simply say it this way. If you and I never acknowledge our need, right, our neediness, we don't ever need a Savior. If you can't get to the place in your life where you say, I am in need, then I don't need a Savior. If I can't get to the place in my life where I say there is a problem, well, then there's not going to be a solution that I need. I don't need to pursue that, right? You don't need the connection if you're fine on your own. And Jesus tells us, in fact, he has very bold statements that he makes to the Pharisees and Sadducees one day. He says, look, I didn't come for the righteous of this world. That's not what I came for. I came for the sick. I came for those who actually had a problem, the hurting, the helpless amongst us. And Paul is living into that same sort of sentiment, that same reality. He knows that you and I, we're not fine on our own. You and I, we're not okay on our own. And we have to, ultimately, we have to start with that confession right there. That we know we're not fine on our own. We know we're dead. We know we were that. Jesus came for us in those moments. Jesus came for us who are broken. He came for us who are hurting. He came for us who needed that healing and that cleansing in our souls. He came to liberate all in this world who are in bondage by oppression and all the, the things that happen in this world. That's why Jesus came. That's what he's here for. And that's why the Apostle Paul starts and he says, please don't forget, you were this. You were there. But that's not the end of the story. Because you were, but then the next verse he says, but God. There's this but God moment that happens, and and he kind of spells this out for us as he goes through it. Paul knew this because Paul lived this. Paul knew what he was, dead in his sins, but God stepped into Paul's life. I mean, think about the the encounter that Paul had in his own life where he's going down the road one day as a a state-sponsored terrorist on his way to execute Christians. Like, this is exactly what Paul is doing. This is how he makes his living. He's in that space And it's in that space that God shows up. Paul says, I was on my way to perform that duty, but God showed up in my life. I was on my way to encounter 
uh, this, this terrible reality. But God showed up, right? God didn't wait for Paul to come back to him. In that space, God showed up for Paul. He shows up in his life. And this is the same thing that happens for you and I. He shows up for us. Look at how Paul describes this in verse 4. And remember, this is lived experience for him. You were dead in your sins, but by the time we get to verse 4, he says, what? But God. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, God's the one who made us alive in Jesus Christ. Paul's like, I was on my way to the job, but God showed up. I was on my way. I was going to hunt down some more Christians, but God showed up. I was leading myself down this path of destruction, but God showed up and stood right in my path that day. And let me tell you, that's the same way that God chooses to show up for us. It's not a God who's waiting for us to come to him, but it's a God who constantly shows up in our life. He shows up for us in the midst of our decay and death and all the frustration in our life. We're moving around just trying to figure out how to survive and make it to the next day. But God shows up in our life in that place. Reminds me of the story of my grandmother who, uh, my grandmother early on, she was, um, she was raised as a United Methodist. And then somewhere along the line, she sort of drifted away in her faith from God. And, and when she was a very young mother, she was just in her early 20s after she had her first child. Um, and, you know, Cars were a thing that, at that time. She was just learning how to drive. She wasn't great at it, but she was learning how to drive. And, and her little, her, her firstborn, Pat, my uncle Pat, was in the back seat. And in that place, she had this terrible wreck. Went off the side of the road, totaled the car. It was just a devastating moment for her. It was her buck God moment. She sat in that ditch, just, you know, shaken to her core and looked around to make sure that her son was okay. And in that space right there, she was like, God, you're speaking to me. And my grandmother, I, you know, I wish so many people could meet her. Like, she was the most saintly person I've ever known in my life. And the grandmother that I knew would never have not been a part of the body of Christ. On the other side of that but God moment, that which was dead was no longer dead, but fully alive. God had stepped into her life in that moment, and she had this place where God became real for her. her. This grace became abundant for her. And I know this is not true in all cases. There are some cases of tragedy that don't lead to that. But I, I, but I think that in a very real way, God has this powerful way of working with each one of us, each one of you, in the midst of crisis moments in your life. It's in the middle of these crisis moments that we become even more active and attuned to what God is doing in our lives. We have this series of things that come along our way, and then all of a sudden, God shows up. God shows up in this real way, but God, God said this to me, and everything changed. But God did this for me, and everything changed. God came through for me, and everything changed. But God, but God, but God. And we hear this over and over again, that it's in the middle of those moments that we see the shifting amongst us. And that's what Paul experienced. In our text this morning, and in, in the, the greater story of our faith, that's exactly what Paul experienced, and it's what he's encouraging you and I to live into. We were dead, but God showed up. And that last part, this last part that we're getting to is perhaps the most important of all because Paul, Paul describes what we were. We were dead. That's where we were. Paul describes God's intervention, but God shows up in that space. But the final question that really comes to you and me this morning is how did God show up? That's, that's important. Because right? there's a lot of different ways in which God can show up. And, and for the ancient world, there were a lot of ways that the divine beings did show up. Usually it was not in kind ways. Usually it was not in beneficent ways. When the, the deities showed up in lives of those who were there, they were afraid and timid and all of these things. But, but Paul says he shows up in a different way. 
you were dead in your sins, but God shows up. And when God shows up, he doesn't come to just align with the rich and famous and the powerful to give them more powerful. He doesn't come wielding a sword and blowing, you know, bolts of lightning bolt at us like William Wallace. Like, that's not how he shows up in those spaces. When he shows up, by what? By what means does he show up? By grace. By grace. That's exactly. In fact, if you're looking with me in the scripture, verse uh, 5, the end of verse 5, he says, by what? Grace. By grace. You've been saved. You want to know how God shows up in your life? It's not in these powerful, overpowering ways. God shows up for sure. He makes the first step to you. But when he does, he does it by grace. He offers that grace to you. You were, but God, by his grace, shows up. And by grace, look at what, what he does. Verse 6 and verse 7. By grace, he raised us up with him, with Christ Jesus. He seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He gives us the life that you and I struggle to find. He restores that for us. So that, in verse 7, in the age to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. We've been saved. We've been ushered into this sort of new reality, this kingdom that's out there for us. And God's grace has provided that new reality for us. And then Paul reminds us once more, is the only part of these nine verses where he repeats the formula. He says, you were, but God, then he wants to make sure you know this, by grace, by grace. Verse nine, once more, for by grace you've been saved. Through faith, listen, and know it's human compulsion to want to do this on your own. And know it's human compulsion to want to try and prove this on your own. It's not yours to prove. It's not your works. It's not anything that you're doing. Listen, this is a gift of God that comes before you ever knew it. It's a gift of God. It's not the results of works so that no one may boast. It's one of the most beautiful reasons when we gather with families in baptism that we can declare it's not by your works. It's not what you've done. It's by grace. And it's a grace that starts with you from the very beginning of your life and accompanies you all throughout your life. And this is the way that Jesus modeled his life and his death. It's the grace that he taught about over and over again. It's the grace that Jesus exhibited one day in John chapter 8 when a woman came at his feet, was thrown at his feet. And Jesus sees her laying there and everyone around her is wanting to offer condemnation. And Jesus, after writing a few things in the sand, stands up and he says, he who has no sin cast the first stone. And he goes back and he turns away. And one by one, her accusers leave. And at the end of that, this woman is sitting there just with Jesus. It's just him and her. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? And she looks up in fear at that moment. None. He says, well, guess what? Neither do I. I don't condemn you either. I'm not coming into this world to offer condemnation for anything you've done or any way. I'm here to offer you grace in that moment. And he teaches this and transforms her life and the stories about her spread and spread and spread. And he continues to offer his teachings. And later on, as he's offering a series of parables on lost things, he tells this story that so many of us know of a lost son. He's not really lost. This son decided to walk away. This son decided to be proactive and say, Dad, you are as good as dead to me. That's what he said. Oh, and give me the money of my inheritance. I don't, I don't even want to pretend that you're alive anymore, Dad. And he went off with that money after doing such a terrible thing to his father. And he wasted it all. 
And everybody in the crowd is listening to Jesus tell this story like, oh my gosh, I hope this kid gets his just dessert. Like he, he get, needs exactly what he deserves after doing that to his father. And at the end of the story, the turning point for the entire thing is when we hear the, the father once more. And it's the father who's been sitting on his front porch looking down the road every single day waiting for the day where his son will come back. And one day, over the horizon, his son comes. And he pursues him. He runs out to him. He pursues him with all of his heart. And then he says, let's throw a party because that son who was, what, dead is alive again. He's lost, but he's found. He's been changed in this way. And this is the overwhelming grace of God. And in fact, it's the grace that even showed up on the final night of Jesus's life. You know, there's a line we say in just a few minutes, we will as we participate at the table. As I grab the bread and as I grab the cups, I always remind us, and every preacher does this, I don't know if you've noticed this, we always say on the night in which Jesus was what? Betrayed. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them saying. And one of the powerful parts of us reminding ourselves of his betrayal is Jesus gave that bread to his betrayer. Judas is in the room that night, and, and all of the Gospels want to make it very clear that Jesus did not dismiss Judas when he shared that meal with him. Instead, he allowed Judas to stay, and he shared that grace with him. He continued to live in that way on the night in which he was betrayed. You were, but God, by grace. The grace that he freely bestows. And it's important today, some of you, some of you have felt that, that reality. You felt that cycle in your life that you were but God by grace. You felt it maybe many times before. And some of you may be struggling with it right now because you've had one of those but God moments, but you've not seen God in it yet. It's just kind of paused in your life. It's been the but, but this happened. Right? And you don't know how to make sense of it in that place. And that's why it's important to always start with the you were why I started with that. It's why Paul starts with that. Because once again, it reminds us that we are lost and we need to be found. And the final point I leave you with today is until you see yourself as lost, you will not see your need to be found. You have to start there. You have to start in that way. John Newton, that's what it took for him. He needed to see himself as lost. And I know some of us get that, but some of us don't. And today, even around the table, as we gather in just a few minutes, I believe that God can start to unpack that for us. I believe that God can start to show you that even though you might be lost, even though you might be in need of a Savior in this way, He has stepped in, in this very real way and in very real ways in your life, and He comes time and time again to offer you that grace. So maybe you're in the middle of a crisis in your, moment, in your life or you've experienced that, but God... But God is stepping up into that place to remind you that he has more for you, to remind you that he is here for you, to remind you that he has that grace. And as you choose to come to this table today, and all who are here are welcome to our table. But as you choose to come to this table today, no matter how you come or where you come from, I remind you that you come to a table of grace, a table of forgiveness and a table of renewal. And you don't come because it's your works, but you come because of the work that Christ himself has finished for us. A work of grace that comes from Christ alone to us all. Would you stand with me as we prepare our hearts to feast at the table this day?
Gracious God, we thank you so much for your love, which comes to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you that today, even though we stand dead in our trespasses and sin, even though we experience death all around us in our lives, and at times, God, even when we try to fight against it, we feel the weight of that. We push back time and time again, but it just seems like a never-ending battle. We know you're here. We know that you have shown up. We know that you're present, and we know that you're not present in a condemning manner, but you're here by grace. You're here to offer grace. So, Father, as we come to this, your table today, fill us with your grace to overflowing that we may once again be caught in your beauty and love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.